Good health is a crown worn by the healthy that only the ill can see. Your health really is your wealth. Join us for the next hour as we explore disease and attaining and maintaining good health. This is Dischem Medical Monday, brought to you by Dischem, pharmacists who care. Welcome to Discare Medical Monday. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Gerson. Thank you for joining us. We are joined by Dr. Joyce Ziki today, who is a specialist rheumatologist at Donald Gordon Medical Center and at Sunwood Park Hospital. Thank you, Dr. Ziki, for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thanks, Dean. Thanks for giving up your time. I think when people hear about a rheumatologist, it's um, quite a long name. Sometimes when people hear that an ENT is an otorhinolaryngologist, they don't know what it means either. But you don't have another title, just a rheumatologist. So what is, can you tell our listeners exactly what a rheumatologist is and uh, what you do? Uh, uh, thanks, uh, Dean, for inviting me to your show. Um, a rheumatologist is a specialist physician who specializes in the management and care of patients with arthritis and uh, autoimmune conditions and also autoinflammatory conditions such as gout. And our main uh, mode of treatment is mainly immunosuppressants as we deal with conditions where the immune system becomes overactive and we give drugs to essentially calm down the immune system to say it in simplest of terms. Can you tell me exactly why do people get autoimmune diseases and what actually happens in the body when you get an autoimmune disease? We're not really clear uh, of what causes autoimmune diseases, but various uh, theories have been put forward and various risk factors are known. Uh, and these include uh, genetic factors. So you find some of the diseases run in families, environmental factors such as smoking, dietary factors, and uh, also we see that uh, some autoimmune diseases are found mainly in females. So the female hormones also play um, a factor in some of these autoimmune diseases. And uh, those are some of the few risk factors that we know to cause uh, autoimmune diseases. So in your uh, practice, what is the most common autoimmune disease that uh, you see? And then maybe we can speak a bit about that. So we see a lot of um, patients with uh, systemic lupus, erythromatosis, uh, Sjogren's, uh, rheumatoid arthritis, and um, spondyloarthritis. This is a whole family of uh, arthritis, which include commonly psoriatic arthritis. Okay, so maybe we can start off with the lupus. It sounds like a very fancy, a very fancy name. Can you tell us? Um, about about the disease, who get who gets uh, lupus and how does it present? How would one per- person know if they had lupus? So lupus, which is uh, in full, like you said, is a mouthful. Systemic lupus erythromatosis, which we abbreviate commonly to SLE or lupus, it's mainly diagnosed in females. So most of the patients who get it are females. And uh, the main risk factors is uh, genetics, the female hormones, and um, also one of the risk factors is uh, sunlight, you know, being exposed to, to sunlight. And uh, one knows or one suspects to have this disease, especially when it's a multisystemic disease, so the commonest features are usually cutaneous, so skin manifestations, so you get skin rashes, 
and there are various rashes associated with uh, lupus. There are more than 20 rashes, you know, and at times we're assisted by the dermatologists and we find some of our patients come via the dermatologist. The other common presentation is alopecia, which, whereby one begins to lose their hair or they present with fevers unrelated to infections or you find they may present with um, what we call cutaneous vasculitis, so basically painful skin lesions on their hands, feet, and uh, they can also present with arthritis. Or more concerning, they may have organ involvement, and the organs commonly involved is the brain, and there are also various manifestations uh, ranging from headaches to strokes, they can present with cardiac problems or heart issues. They may have what is called serocytis. They have water around their heart. Or they can present with kidney failure, where their kidneys are not uh, working well. So it's really a multitude of system, uh, symptoms. And uh, hence, we it is a multisystemic uh, disease. And very at times, it's very difficult to, to diagnose. How do you make the diagnosis of uh, SLE? Initially, it's the presentation, the clinical symptoms, like I've mentioned. So one can present with any of the systems, one system, two, three, or four systems. So basically, it's the symptoms. And then we'd run a, a series of blood tests. Basically, the first line test is autoimmune tests, whereby we test for ANA, ENA, and various other antibodies that are in keeping with uh, systemic lupus erythromatosis. So that's the first part, the antibodies. And then we look at organ involvement. So kidney tests, heart assessment, brain assessment, uh, lung assessments, joint assessment, skin assessments. And we bring all that together and we make uh, the diagnosis. At times we are at assisted by various uh, investigations or tests, such as scans of the brains, echocardiography by a cardiologist, uh, lung manifestations, chest x-rays. So we use various tests. We coordinate with various specialists to, to make the diagnosis. Okay, we're going to take a short ad break, and then when we come back, we can talk maybe about treatment of SLD. We'll be back right after this. This is Medical Monday brought to you with compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care. Welcome back to Discam Medical Monday. I'm your host, Dean Gerson. We are speaking to Dr. Joy Siki, who is a specialist rheumatologist and specialist physician at Donald Gordon Medical Center in Sunwood Park. Uh, we are just talking about SLE or Systemic lupus erythematosus. Did I say it right? No, I think I said the wrong, the, wrong, the last part uh, wrong. I'll just stick to SLE. <laughs> I think we'll, I'll just stick to, to SLE. Um, Joyce, can you tell us now um, about some of the treatment? You described some of the presenting symptoms and some of the investigations. Obviously, you have to individualize treatment, but can you tell us a bit about the treatment for SLE? Treatment is based on which organs are involved. So you find um, if it's skin, at times we use topicals. So usually we give uh, creams for the skin. and uh, But the mainstay of our treatment is immunosuppression. So basically we're trying to 
calm down the immune system so we don't dis- the body does not destroy itself. And uh, the drugs we use is um, plasma queen. So everyone essentially receives plasma queen or chloroquine. This is a drug that we borrow from malaria treatment. And we give it basically to all our lupus patients. And uh, depending on organ manifestation, severity of disease, we give um, drugs such as azathioprine, methotrexate, uh, Celsept, uh, mycophenolate, morphotil, uh, we give cyclosporin. And if these drugs, which are usually oral or tablet form, do not work, we then try and we give what is called biologic treatment. And this is more expensive, this is more targeted, and uh, it's usually difficult to get the medical aids to fund these drugs unless you're on higher medical aid plans. So like with Discovery, you're looking at your executive uh, plans. And um, so there's rituximab in that uh, arena. That's the one biologic that is uh, available for lupus patients. Can you, can it's you maybe, a very expensive drug. Can you maybe just explain to our listeners what exactly a, a biologic uh, drug is and how it's different to your normal immune suppressants? The immunosuppressants are basically... Target the immune, targeting the immune system at a cellular level. So they are killing the cells of the immune system that are causing the clinical problems that we've uh, discussed earlier. And biologic treatment is basically targeting what is called uh, cytokines. These are products of the immune system or of the cells of the immune system that actually affect the problem. So hence it is more targeted. So one is at a cellular level. Biologics are at the products of the cells called cytokines. Why are the biologics so expensive? Mainly related to the cost of producing these drugs. And uh, some of them are still patent. So that is why they're expensive. But recently we've had uh, biosimilars coming onto the market, which are much cheaper than the original drugs. So hence the cost. And uh, most of them are given as IV infusions versus the tablets, which are tablets, and the other ones are IV. So really cost of production and also the specificity of the treatment makes it more expensive. All those other immune suppressions that you mentioned, uh, um, just from uh, my brief knowledge of them, I mean, the, the side effects of them aren't great. How Does that mean that all lupus patients have terrible side effects on their drugs? or they live a terrible quality of life, or does it depend on the dose and how long they're on it for? I mean, these drugs work, and they do change or improve the quality of lives of uh, patients with lupus. And yes, some patients will have drug uh, side effects, but we tend to monitor them closely. Should one develop side effects, we change to another drug, which hopefully they will tolerate. And um, yeah, but generally they are well tolerated, and the other thing I've noticed is um, patients stop following up with their rheumatologist or their physician, and hence other side effects like uh, dropping their white cell count, liver dysfunction, or kidney failure go unnoticed because patients are just taking these medications without being monitored by their physician. I guess that's, that's great advice that you, they are dangerous drugs if they're taken in the wrong way and without being monitored properly by the, uh, your physician, you can have some serious uh, 
side effects. I guess those drugs are used in a lot of um, autoimmune diseases. Can we move on to our next one, uh, past SLA? You mentioned Sjogren's disease, which is something that I sometimes deal with uh, as well as an ENT, and maybe we'll discuss that a bit during diagnosis. Um, do you want to tell everybody about uh, Sjogren's disease, or what it is and how people present? Sjogren's disease is also another autoimmune condition, and the hallmark or clinically one suspects uh, that they have Sjogren's, usually if they have dry mouth and dry eyes. And also the diagnosis is based on uh, autoantibody tests that we run. So characteristically, they have what is called the raw and LA antibodies. And uh, they can also present very similar to the lupus patients, multisystemic, uh, can present with arthritis, skin rashes, Lung involvement, especially interstitial lung disease, they can have brain involvement, but basically they mainly get vasculitis. Uh, very rarely do they get uh, kidney involvement. Um, and yeah, it is a frustrating disease, especially we can't do much for the dryness of the eyes and mouth. And most patients find that as one thing that affects their quality of life. How is the diagnosis made? I know I often get a nice written note saying, please, can you biopsy a, a minor salivary gland? Why do, what, how, mm-hmm. what do we look for on the minor salivary gland? Biopsy, what do we for on blood tests? So on the, on the salivary gland, we're looking for a lymphocytic infiltration. So basically, infiltration of the salivary gland and that leads to destruction and decreased function of the salivary gland and also decreased, uh, which ultimately leads to decreased uh, saliva production. So that's why we do the biopsy. It's more specific. And then on the blood, we do an ANA, which is a screening test for autoimmune disease, which is also usually may or may not be positive. And then we also do an ENA, which is another um, autoimmune uh, marker, which is usually positive, and then we do the more specific one, which is the raw antibody. And uh, talking about the raw antibody, you find patients who have raw antibodies, when they fall pregnant, their children or their fetus are prone to cardiac involvement. So some of the fetuses end up with heart blocks, or the mother is going to premature labor, or they have placental complications. So having a raw antibody positivity in a Sjogren's patient carries a poor prognosis in the pregnancy. And we usually monitor these uh, women very closely when they are pregnant. Okay, so so what can you do to symptomatically relieve the dry mouth and the dry eyes? So basically it's a supportive management, uh, eye drops, um, so we give dura tears at times, natural tears, and um, with the dry mouth, it's usually sugar-free, chewing gum, frequent dental uh, assessments and dental care is they are prone to dental caries because of the dry mouth. We encourage them to drink fluids frequently to help uh, lubricate the mouth. And if these don't uh, work, we then put them on uh, immunosuppression. So it's a very difficult, these are very difficult symptoms to control, 
But uh, if we're not winning with support, we then give immunosuppression. And the drugs we use are similar to the ones I've mentioned with uh, systemic lupus erythromatosis. And uh, what's the progression like of uh, Sjogren's? Is it, uh, do they, even on treatment, do they get progressively worse or can, is it successful in halting the, uh, the progression? You should say that it was a very challenging disease to deal with. It's a challenging disease to, to deal with, uh, and it tends to be quite progressive despite treatment. So I think immunosuppression or treatment just delays the progression, but most of the times it is a progressive disease. And yeah, the dry mouth and dry eyes are really disabling. We're going to take another short ad break. We'll be back after this. This is Medical Monday brought to you with compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care. Welcome back to Discam Medical Monday. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Gerson, and we're speaking to Dr. Joyce Dickey, specialist rheumatologist. And we've been discussing autoimmune diseases, something I think we hear a lot about but don't know uh, much about. So thank you again, Dr. Dickey, for joining us and for informing us about uh, all these different uh, diseases. We've spoken about SLE and we've spoken a bit about Sjogren's. And I think one of the most common things that people uh, here are talking about is gout and probably managed a lot by GPs. Maybe you can tell us uh, what exactly is gout and why is it so common? And we can go into some of the investigations and treatment as well. Gout is really a common uh, condition treated by general practitioners, general physicians. And um, when we see the gout patients, most times they've been to their GP, they've been to their physician, they've been commenced on uh, colchicine, puricos, gout cocktails, and anti-inflammatories, and the pain persists, the joints continue to be painful, um, that's one group of patients that comes to us. Another group of gout patients is those with uh, what is called tophaceous uh, gout. And so gout is basically um, crystal arthropathy. Uh, so the pain or the, the arthritis is secondary to crystal formation due to elevated uh, uric acid in the body. And this then uh, sets off an inflammatory process in the joints that results in joint pain. And uh, if not well-treated or well-controlled, you may find the crystals begin to form what is called tophi, and this is like a chalky material, and it forms on joints, on tissues, on the ear, ear lobes, or anywhere on the body. And uh, you find this is quite uh, disfiguring, you know, cosmetically, despite, I mean, irrespective of the, despite the pain, it is also cosmetically, you know, disturbing for, for patients who have tophaceous gout. And uh, it's generally found like now we're seeing very young patients with gout. I have one gentleman who came to me last week and he's 24 and he's already got tophaceous gout. And this started when he was 15. So with him, it's more of a genetic cause for his gout. And the other common causes are renal failure. I've seen in patients with renal failure patients on diuretics, uh, patients taking certain drugs like our TB drugs, and some of the immunosuppressants can also predispose you to gout formation and uh, genetics. So there's a big component of uh, genetics 
understand that you've got to be predisposed to it and that there's genetics. What about people saying, I can't uh, have my glass of wine or steak, or there's certain things that predispose them to, to having a gout? Will anyone get it? Or um, if they have the wine or the steak or the meat? These are triggers, so already in a predisposed patient. So someone whose uric acid is already high. And when they take a glass of wine or they have red meat or they have oily fish or they have organ meat such as livers, um, then you, they increase, they rapidly increase the uric acid level in the body and this triggers an acute attack of gout. So it's already in a predisposed, uh, person and most likely someone we call hyperuricemic, high uric with high uric acid. Okay, so I mean, uh, I've seen patients who have an acute gout attack, it looks almost debilitating. So how do we treat it in the acute phase and uh, how do we treat it? So it looks acute uh, attack of gout, usually we, 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 we look at it from two aspects. So if it's a new patient, uh, first time uh, presenting with acute uh, gout, we treat the symptoms with uh, non-steroidals, so things like brufen, indocid, uh, cataflam, coxflam, exinef, so basically your anti-inflammatories, or we can give them uh, corticosteroids orally, or we give them intra-articular steroids into the affected joint that's in the acute setting. So also supportive uh, measures such as ice compression to the affected area also helps. And um, if these measures do not uh, relieve the pain or one has a second attack, third attack of gout, then we begin to to treat the gout with uh, uric acid uh, lowering drugs. And the commonest drug that we use is uh, Puricos um, together with Colchicin. And the one thing I've noticed is uh, patients come in and when they have their acute attack of gout, their general practitioner uh, advises them to take colchicin every second hour until they have diarrhea. And we don't encourage that. <laughs> the current guidelines that we've... <laughs> well, is, that, that, is that one of the known side effects of colchicin that it gives diarrhea? Yes, that is one of the known side effects. So you're advised to take it until you have diarrhea. And most patients, when they come, they are very unhappy, you know. And you say, okay, I'm, I'm going to give you Puricos with colchicin. And they say, no, 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 no. I'm not going to do that again, you know. So we give just 0.5 milligrams of colchicin a day, you know, versus taking almost 10 of them in one day is they're usually advised by their general practitioner. So that's one misnomer or mismanagement of, of gout that I've observed. And um, and also the second thing is when we start the puricos, we do not start at 300 milligrams, uh, like you find most general practitioners do with their patients, because that will precipitously drop your uric acid and that can even worsen the joint pains. So the patient comes and says, I don't want colchicin, I don't want pericos because it made my joints worse. So we tend to start at 100 milligrams of pericos and titrate it up, depending on how much the patient needs. At times you got up to as high as 600 or 700 milligrams of uh, pericos a day. And then you find also with the general practitioners, they keep their patients on 300 milligrams, irrespective of their uric acid uh, level.
Okay, so you have to you have to uh, be careful, I guess, and titrate to them. How does colchicine and pericos uh, work? So colchicine is basically there to prevent further acute uh, attacks of gout. So it stabilizes your your inflammatory cells, so you don't get these repeated uh, attacks of gout. Is you lower the uric acid because the one thing that gives you or gives one the acute attack is the change in concentration of the uric acid. So as we lower the uric acid, that change is what triggers uh, the acute attack of, of gout. So you can imagine if you give someone 300 milligrams, you precipitously lower the uric acid and trigger uh, joint pains versus a gentle lowering of uh, the uric acid, hence the titration. And then uh, the, uri- uh, the puricose, it basically prevents production of uric acid in the biochemical pathway. So it blocks the enzymes that lead to the production of uh, uric acid. So basically it blocks xanthine oxidase. That's the enzyme it blocks. And hence you don't make uh, uric acid. That's how puricos works. And hence we keep, we give puricos to lower the uric acid and we give colchicine 0.5 daily just to stabilize or to prevent the attacks of gout is we lower the uric acid. Why is gout so painful? What actually happens inside the joints that makes it that makes it so painful? It's the crystals that form and that sets off an auto-inflammatory process. So at times it's described as someone uh, uh, what a pin prick or like a someone hammering a pin or nail into your toe. You know, so that's how painful it is, but it's an inflammatory process triggered by crystal formation in the joint. Okay, wow. Okay, certainly something um, I wouldn't want. Uh, I wouldn't want to have, and I'm sure when people get some relief from you from from these attacks, they're so mm-hmm. they're so grateful. No, yeah, it, it can change lives because at times patients have recurrent attacks. You know, so you can imagine if you're having this constant pain every second or third day. It's excruciating. Yeah, and, and debilitating. I can imagine you can't uh, can't work, you can't get up, you can't perform uh, uh, daily tasks. What happens if you leave uh, gout? Uh, if What happens if you leave gout untreated? Does it destroy your joints eventually or do you... Um, you get uh, arthritis. What what actually happens to your joints if you don't treat it? So if you don't treat it, you do destroy your joints, and you end up with uh, erosions on your bones next to the joint, and that leads to deformities. And you also form tophites, like I mentioned earlier, in the entity called tophaceous gout. So you have these huge holes on your joints or certain parts of your body, which is really not nice. So it is also not uh, cosmetically appealing when one has tophaceous gout, especially in the hands. Like this young man I'm talking about, he has tophaceous gout on his hands, you know, and he says he constantly has to hide his hands, and he's a market, he's a market, he's into marketing, and he constantly has to hide his hands. So you can have, I mean, you can even see how much this is actually affecting his life negatively. Yeah, so just to, just to explain to um, our listeners, so the tophaceous gout, these are like these white cottage cheesy kind of uh, outgrowths around the joints. Um, yes. And they can yeah, be very unsightly. And something I think that 
we should talk about maybe at the end is as well the emotional effects of all these autoimmune diseases. And um, I'm sure you have to deal, you know, it's a lifelong chronic disease, whichever one you might have. And I'm sure it takes its toll emotionally on the patients. Yes, it does. We're going to take another short ad break and we'll come back. We're going to speak about your next most common presenting disease. We'll be back after this. This is Medical Monday brought to you with compliments of Dischem, pharmacists who care. Welcome back to Dischem Medical Monday. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Gerson, and we are joined by Dr. Joy Siki, who is a specialist rheumatologist in private practice at Donagora Medical Center and at Sunwood Park Hospital. Um, Joyce, what what else are you seeing uh, on a day-to-day basis? Uh, you mentioned some type of the of psoriasis, arthritis. Um, which one do you want to start with? So we also see a lot of uh, rheumatoid arthritis. And, and, uh, and what, 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 what's the difference? Can you explain to us what's the difference between rheumatoid arthritis and uh, normal arthritis or osteoarthritis? What the called the so-called normal arthritis or normal arthritis, which is synonymous to osteoarthritis, is a degenerative arthritis. So it's the end result of a damaged joint. So it could be trauma. It can be these autoimmune uh, arthritis we're talking about. It can be gout, you know, and that ultimately results in a damaged joint. And that damaged joint is uh, osteoarthritis. And the hallmark is that the cartilage or the white lining of the joint over, over the bone is um, finished and you end up with bone to bone movement and you feel that is crepitus or most patients say, oh, my joint is making a noise and it's because that cartilage is finished. So it's a degenerative type of uh, arthritis and is the end result of a damaged joint can also occur in with age as we age you know, the normal wear and tear of uh, of the joint. That is osteoarthritis. And uh, rheumatoid arthritis is one of the um, arthritis that can result in damage to the joint. So it's one of the many. And the hallmark of rheumatoid arthritis is basically swollen, painful joints. It really affects the joints of the hands, the small joints of the hands are mainly affected. And you may see this in the other larger joints may also be affected, your knees, your ankles, wrists, shoulders, but generally, and it's an it's a symmetrical arthritis. So you find what happens on the right side of the body also happens on the left side of the body. So that's basically rheumatoid arthritis versus osteoarthritis. Fine. So how, so uh, how would a patient know whether their arthritis is most likely rheumatoid? You mentioned all the different joints and the symmetry. What kind of tests uh, would you do to try and uh, differentiate if it's still not clear? So we run uh, blood tests. Uh, so rheumatoid arthritis is usually associated with a positive rheumatoid factor and a positive ACCP, which is anti-citrullinated uh, peptide. Those are the two antibodies that are usually positive uh, in rheumatoid arthritis, and they are quite uh, diagnostic. If they come back positive, um, more than 90% of the chance you've got rheumatoid arthritis. And then we also then do x-rays of the hands to look for damage to the joints. And um, that's uh, basically how we, we diagnose uh, rheumatoid arthritis. And then we assess the severity of the disease by measuring what is called the CRP and the ESR, 
which are basically markers of inflammation. So when one's joints are swollen and painful, the ESR and CRP are elevated. And when we initiate treatment, our goal is to lower the ESR and CRP to normal. It's obviously a, a progressive disease. What age do most people with rheumatoid arthritis uh, present? Is it a disease of young people or old people? It's really across the board. You know, we see patients presenting before the age of 16, the juvenile arthritis, juvenile inflammatory arthritis. And we see it more in women of childbearing age. Uh, we see it in males, you know, even the elderly males across the ages. But one risk factor is male is genetics and smoking. And it's also an arthritis that's commonly uh, diagnosed in females. So you try to aim to lower the CRP and the ESR and to stop the progression of the disease. What kind of drugs do you treat them with? So methotrexate is the gold standard. And um, if one does not tolerate methotrexate for whatever reason, we then try the other disease-modifying drugs, which they are a couple. There's Arava, Rumalif, or Salazopyrin, or rarely do we use cyclosporin. And uh, we also use plasmaquine or chloroquine, like I mentioned with lupus in our rheumatoid arthritis patients. We either combine the drugs or use one drug depending on how the patient uh, responds. And if these drugs do not work or the patient is still active when we've tried two or three of the DMATs, we then um, use uh, biologic drugs for the patient. Okay. And uh, what is the role of uh, physio or OT or biokinetics? Do they play a role in the treatment of rheumatoid arthritis? They do. They do. And um, especially once we've uh, controlled the arthritis, um, after the acute uh, onset, the joints have settled, they are not swollen, and then the patient can become can begin uh, rehabilitation, muscle strengthening uh, through with the help of biokinetics, physiotherapy, prevent joint deformities. So we do work closely with um, these other. Um, Special uh, specialists, the physiotherapists, the biokineticists, and even the OTs, the occupational therapists, they also help, especially in patients who've got deformities and they need to have splints to help them um, with day activities of uh, daily living. While we're talking about uh, arthritis, a lot of people, we, we had a dermatology show earlier this year and we were talking about uh, psoriasis. Uh, as a skin mm-hmm. disease. Do you see a lot of psoriasis uh, for psoriatic arthritis? Yes, we do. There is a, a lot of patients. So you find um, patients who've had uh, or who have psoriasis uh, are prone to developing psoriatic arthritis. So you find psoriasis and arthritis can occur at the same time or they can be a leg uh, between the arthritis, the rash, and the joints of about 10 plus years. Or you can have the psoriasis developing after the joints have, um, have, have become uh, painful and swollen, and then you pick up that the patient develops psoriasis. So there is a close link. And you find at times we diagnose psoriatic arthritis 
based on family history of psoriasis, especially the first-degree relative. So if you've got a first-degree relative with psoriasis, you are also at risk of developing psoriatic arthritis, even if you don't have psoriasis yourself. How do you make the diagnosis of psoriasis? So it's a challenging diagnosis again. Um, it's straightforward if one has psoriasis, the skin, and uh, painful swollen joints. So that makes it uh, easier. But at times you don't have the psoriasis, but one has uh, painful swollen joints, and you need to distinguish them from the distribution or the features in keeping with rheumatoid arthritis. So in general, patients with psoriatic arthritis tend to have nail problems over and above the joints and the skin. They have nail problems, so their nails may be ridged, or they have what is called onycholysis, or some patients say present as uh, they've had chronic fungal infection of their nails that doesn't doesn't get better. So we, that is called a nail dystrophy in psoriatic arthritis. They also get uh, inflammatory backache, so uh, backache that is worse in the morning and improves with exercise. And you find some patients have had multiple spinal fusions before they are, made, they are given their diagnosis of psoriatic arthritis. And these patients may also have bowel involvement. They may have eye involvement. And there's also a strong family history with uh, psoriatic arthritis. And a small number of the patients may have uh, a genetic uh, marker that is positive, which is called the HLA-B27. But um, not everyone with psoriatic arthritis will have the genetic marker being positive. So you can see how challenging it is. So one can present with back symptoms only, you know, and it's, it can be difficult to distinguish whether this is just a normal backache, mechanical, or is this linked to psoriatic arthritis. So if one has the rash and arthritis, it's much easier to make the diagnosis, but it's not always the case. You mentioned earlier on HLA-B27. Um, mm-hmm. Can you... Tell our listeners maybe what that is, what other autoimmune diseases or rheumatic diseases are associated with that. So an HLA-B27 is a genetic marker uh, that can be tested locally in South Africa. And um, like I said, in some patients, they may just be positive and not develop any uh, symptoms related to arthritis or psoriatic arthritis. And then there's a group of patients that has got the positive gene and they're symptomatic. And associated with this gene is uh, uveitis, which is basically inflammation in the eye. So they present with a unilateral red eye, or it could be bilateral, but most times it's unilateral. They get uh, inflammatory backache, and they may actually have what is called ankylosing spondylitis, which is inflammation of the spine. And if left untreated, you may end up with uh, what we call a bamboo spine and you can't bend, your back is stiff. And it's also associated with the psoriatic arthritis, like I mentioned. And uh, it can also be associated with uh, inflammatory bowel disease or chronic Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis. I'm going to take another short ad break and then maybe we can sum up. This is Medical Monday brought to you with compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care. Welcome back to Disca Medical Monday 101.9 High FM. I'm your host, Dean Gerson. We're speaking to Dr. Joyce Siki, who is a specialist rheumatologist 
at Donald Gordon Medical Center and Sunward Park Hospital. And we've been speaking about autoimmune and rheumatological diseases um, over the past uh, hour. And we said we'd speak at the end about mental health and autoimmune diseases. I imagine it can't be very pleasant to be a patient with autoimmune disease. I'm sure a lot of people have people with autoimmune disease in their family. And from an emotional point of view, getting it right, getting under control, side effects from the medication, um, and also just uh, activities of daily living really must take its toll on, on their patients. Do you have a specific program or uh, do you send to psychiatrists or psychologists? How do you help deal with the mental uh, the mental side of autoimmune disease? So we work with uh, psychologists, psychiatrists, and there's also support groups. So I tend to refer my patients to support groups. There are a lot of groups on Facebook. You know, and there's also apparently a lot of international groups on psoriatic arthritis, spondyloarthritis, that helps patients understand their diseases better, understand drug side effects, and also get support on how to live uh, with these conditions. But yes, it's not um, an easy situation to to live with a chronic autoimmune disease. Sure, and especially as you mentioned, uh, it can be from anyone from from young until old, and it can be besides mm. just feeling terrible. Um, also, it can you know have some distorting um, or unpleasant uh, body uh, external body appearances. Joyce, how mm. can patients? How can people get hold of you if they want to make an appointment with you? So, um, I see patients at uh, the Vitz uh, Donald Gordon uh, Faculty Practice. And I'm also at Sunwood Park uh, Hospital. And uh, we've got a website um, where you can make your appointment on the website to any one of the two uh, centers. And it's uh, za. And there you can make uh, your bookings. Or you can contact my assistant, Farello on zero six three triple six one seven nine three. She's also available on WhatsApp on that number and she'll assist you with bookings at uh, whichever of the two centers is convenient for, for you. Dr. Joyce Diki, thank you so much for spending time with us and informing us about rheumatological disease. And thank you to our listeners for listening. We hope you got a lot out of it. We'll see you next week. Hope everybody has a great week.